Hello, welcome back for another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. Glad you made it back from the last couple episodes. Hope you enjoyed them and uh, stay tuned for more of the same. We've got another great lineup for you on this podcast as well. Hope everyone is doing well. We are a wine podcast that is based off the Friends of the Vine Facebook group. And uh, we're not too serious here. We're trying to be a little light on that big topic of wine. It is a big topic, and uh, we try and hit a little bit of it here and there. Try and get some insight, try and get some knowledge along the way, and uh, find some fun fun guests uh, to help entertain us and help provide a little bit of knowledge and insight. This episode will focus uh, exclusively on an interview I did with Brian McClintock from the Psalm Films. As uh, if, if you guys have uh, followed the first couple episodes, you'll... Uh, You'll know that I've been chasing this for a little bit, but I uh, was finally able to uh, sit down with or uh, do a FaceTime interview with uh, with Brian and uh, get it recorded. So that was uh, that was excellent, and <clears throat> it's a little longer than the normal. I try and keep them around half hour, but uh, the conversation was just great with uh, with Brian. So it's, it's about a 45, 50 minute long uh, interview, but uh, tons of great content in it, and uh, I. I had a good time, and uh, it's meaningful for me. Uh, he's someone that I kind of look up to and, and uh, admire in the wine industry. So it was a great uh, chance and opportunity to speak with him and speak to him for quite a while. So that's the bu- the bulk of this episode will be with him. I had mentioned about, uh, I've also recorded an interview with Alex Anderson, who is a up-and-coming inspiring psalm. Uh, I think I'll do that. I'll leave that for the next episode because I don't want to cut anything from this episode. And I also want to give her uh, her own due uh, and give her her own uh, podcast episode because uh, we also had a great uh, great interview with uh, also had a great interview with her. So I don't want to cut hers short, and I don't want to cut uh, Brian's short either. So he is currently in France, and he is the founder of Viticole Wines, which is a wine club, uh, which he'll go into in a bit uh, when uh, when I start up the uh, interview. Uh, and he's from the two Psalm films as well, which hopefully you guys have seen. They're still on Netflix and uh, they're still available to be seen. The third one is coming out in uh, the next little bit. And that's where our uh, interview starts, me talking about the first Psalm film and, and kind of how it came about. So there's kind of a few a few recurring questions I ask him in, the, in, in this interview, which is about the Psalm films, how they came about. Uh, what he's kind of been up to since the second Psalm film, which came out about three years ago now. What kind of what is what he's been up to, what he's doing with his Viticole Wine Club, uh, his travels through France. So there's a, there's kind of a whole ho- a whole host of of questions uh, that I ask him, and <clears throat> of course my reoccurring question, which I've, I've been trying to ask everyone that I interview, which is is wine for you uh was there an epiphany moment is wine for you a, a, a something that was a general gradual appreciation or or did it kind of come about in a bit of an epiphany or a bit of an aha moment and uh, his answer is one that i kind of like for myself now it, kind of listening to his answer it's something very similar to mine my experience so listen for that and it's uh, it was a great uh, great time uh, being able to chat with him we could have probably chatted a lot longer, but uh, trying to keep them, trying to keep these podcasts uh, under an hour for sure. So it was about a forty-five minute chat. So it was great. 
So with all that in mind, let's get to this week's episode. You know, the first one we worked on together, so it was more collaborative that way. But yeah. the second one, I, I had no idea what it was until he put a camera in front of my face. Are you, were you guys, were you guys friends before, before the, yeah, we were, so the Psalm came about, um, because we were, we were at a mutual friend's house in Orange County. He was just finishing up, um, Chapman film school was putting himself through, um, college bartending. And I was working in restaurants and we had this mutual group that would, that would meet and drink wine all night. And it would be like in this garage band, like it's just like musty cave of a man, man cave. Yeah. It was, uh, it's like eight or nine of us. And we were just like, we were young and, you know, yeah. would have an extra chromosome and be, um, wrestling like in the middle of the night hammered, you know, like that, that type of shit. What ended up happening was we were at one of those functions and he's like, yeah, I got to sink my teeth into something. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm starting to pursue wine and there are some oddball characters in that world. Yeah. He's like, well, why is, why is it interesting? I'm just like, you just have to, you just have to see it. And so he, he ended up following me. This was in 2009 like spring, summer, yeah. right in there. And I had been into wine like seriously for like nine months. I was, I was pretty, pretty, uh, green. Yeah. And so he, he, uh, follows me to the camera, you know, at, at this restaurant where we're, we're all training. He's never seen a blind tasting before. He's never seen like what it takes to go through the exam, knew nothing about it. Right. And he's a very kind of neurotic and, and um, uh, gregarious guy. And yep. he was dead silent for like six hours shooting. And he's like, okay, thanks. And he left. And I'm like, well, he probably wasn't, wasn't too into it. Yeah. But um, he called me back about two weeks later. And he's like, I haven't slept in two weeks. Let's, how, do we, how do we make this film? That's cool. And first feature. And he, we basically called the court of master sommeliers met with their PR firm in San Francisco. Um, I flew out from Aspen for that. He flew up from LA and we met in San Francisco and the PR firm and the court both gave us the, the green light. Mm. I don't think anybody thought, you know, it was going to do anything, but they're like, well, this can't hurt. So, and I mean, you got unprecedented, I mean, or he got unprecedented access too, pretty much, right? Like, yeah. I mean, he had a shoestring budget. He, yeah. I, I remember him, like, they didn't even have a, a bed to sleep in at our house. He slept on the hardwood floor. It would be pigs in a blanket. Him, the cinematographer, Jackson Myers, you know, Mike Ryan, who was doing sound. And yeah. they'd be like sleeping all three in the living room side by side with each other. That was... About 80% of the Psalm film was that, you know, it was that principal photography in, in our house. Yeah. And, uh, so it's like to see that and to see how many hours of just really boring, geeky people talking about wine, I'm just sitting here going, how are they going to find an yeah. interesting film? How, yeah, the, the nugget, the nugget in there that, you know, like, <laughs> 
How you, and how are you going to edit the shit out of that to get it to like, like say something meaningful? Oh God, yeah. Like you're, it's your first feature film, and you have like a thousand hours of footage of people just like you know, uh, garden hose, uh, you know, decaying animal skin. And you're just like, yeah. what am I going to do with this? You know, it's not like food porn where it's just like you see like a piece of fish sizzling on a grill. You're instantly hungry. With with wine, it's like this gets old after yeah. a while. So you have to you have to really um, find something beyond the visual to, to hook people. Yeah. And he was, he was able to do it and hasn't looked back since. Well, I was going to say, that's like, that's where like the second one go for him to then not try and repeat, obviously the first one, you know, keep yeah. the magic of the first one. And then, and then the second one being, as like you said, it's entirely a different animal on its own makes it intriguing for the third one now, because if the third one's completely separate from the first two, then you're, he's going to hook, you know, because some people may not necessarily like the first one because it's strictly kind of, you know, four guys going for their master song kind of thing. But then the second one, it's what else is about wine, right? Like what else, like what else mm-hmm. goes into the bottle as, as it, as it says, right. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, what's, you know what I mean? Like what's he going to do for the third one that again, intrigues people, right? Yeah, totally. You know, I, I, I know the first one, the first one, you know, I guess wasn't a true doc in the sense that um, there was almost a, a reality aspect built into it. Right. While, while that was very much filmed authentically, we knew there was a, a th- kind of a three act structure. It was like, okay, this is what this is. Here's them training for it. Yeah. And will they pass? Yeah. So that there was like a built in narrative. In most documentaries, it's like you shoot a bunch of footage and you're like, where's the story within it? And that was very much the second one. But in a way, the second one was kind of a response to the first one where people were like, okay, I see this crazy world. I see them studying. But what actually is this world? You know, what are these things on their note cards? And then Salmon of the Bottle kind of took you there. The third film, I, I have to imagine is probably not going to be a response to the first or the second. It's probably, you know, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm just being hypothetical or speculating. I'm speculating that it's, it's probably going to be a very personal project mm. for Jason and probably something that, that is meaningful to him having been entrenched since basically 2009 in this industry as a filmmaker, like it or not. So we'll see what that is. Literally, I have no, I have no idea. Well, it's, it, like you said about um, seeing what's going on and, and keeping in touch with him on Instagram, and and uh, he because he posted something about hey, I'm filming that cork buzz. If you want to be in the film, you know, make sure you're eating that. You know, be there that night, kind of thing, right? Right. So yeah. that's kind of cool. That uh, you know. Yeah. No, I. I. He's. You know, he he was a genius marketer, too, from, from the beginning. I mean, when Psalm was ready to come out, I think Instagram was basically just born. Mm. And Facebook was still very popular. And Twitter was fairly powerful as well in 2011, 2012. And he, what he was able to rally... Um, using kind of the gatekeepers of the industry wasn't, was incredible. Um, and it, it, I think is 
hugely indicative of the digital success that the that the film had. Yeah. You know. So. Well, and that's and that's also the the not the birth of Netflix, but that's when Netflix kind of also took off. So then you've kind of right. I mean, that's where I that's where I watched them was on Netflix. So right. That's where a lot of people. It's like I like I'll say to someone, "Hey, have you seen the movies or whatever?" And they're, they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, it's on. It's on Netflix. Okay, perfect. I can watch it whenever." Right? Yeah. And that's it's, it's fairly fairly fascinating. Like, um, so I with the way iTunes works is like you get a percentage of how many people download. Hmm. Um, whereas as Netflix, when you, from the business side, when you're negotiating with them, they pay a flat fee for the film. And think about what is this film worth to how many new potential subscribers right. I could have? How much is this content worth? And they pay you a flat fee. So, I mean, the marketing strategy was always to drive people to iTunes because right. you, could, you could make more money. And it was a huge digital success on iTunes. But Netflix, just range of yeah. consumers, is just that, that pool is so large that it took it to another level. Well, and the fact that they're both the fact that they're both still on there, like, you know how they won't, some of the films only be on Netflix for so long. Yeah. And they wipe them, right? Or whatever. Yeah. The fact that they're still on there just shows you that it's got some, some longevity for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's been a good relationship with the song yeah. films and Netflix and I don't expect that to die. I think, you know, there'll be a lot of people who've never seen the first two films that see the third as there was with the second. Right. And so, We'll, we'll end up getting a lot of, you know, residual new viewers who were like, oh, this is a trilogy. I right. No idea. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then they'll go, yeah, exactly. They'll go back and, and see the uh, first two. Yeah. One of the email or one of the questions I had was about, obviously about Viticol and, and I guess my, I'm, I'm thinking of your kind of like, like chronologically, like, so 2015 ish, the second movie came out and then like 2017, you started, you just kind of launched that. So what, where, where have you been in the last couple of years other than, other than Viticol? Like, so what was after Song 2, what was you, were you still in California or were you in France at that point? Uh, so after Song 2, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was starting to launch Viticol. I don't think Viticol had even launched by the time Song came out, the second film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I left Les Marchand, you know, I opened Les Marchand in 13 and left there in 2015. I had been on the floor on and off since 1994 and had not done a lot of traveling and was kind of really tired of pouring wines for my guests and talking about the regions that I had right. known like the back of my hand on note cards and never have gone there. So, right. um, I, I realized that, you know, most of Le Marchand was branded on me being there and the online opportunity was very much a, a giant excuse to travel as much as it was um, a labor of love to do something that was really authentic to me. Yeah. Um, so I, it's been like our first offer was on Instagram for Viticol on May 2016 mm. and I think... I think the Psalm film came out, I want to say Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 2016. Is that right? I, I think it was. Yeah. 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 
That was the digital release. And there was, I don't think there was a theatrical with Psalm 2. So, yeah, it, it, I was in that tween land of trying to figure out what is Viticole going to be? Like, what, what am I doing with this? And it happened to just, while the website was being built out, they gave me like a kind of a fall launch for the, for the website. I'm like, okay, let's see if I can make a little bit of, of cash to generate in the, in the meantime. So I, I, I did a, a, I started a monthly offer. And we sold, the first one was May, it was Raj Parr's Annika Syrah, and we sold 20 cases in about three hours. It was gone. Nice. And I'm like, I, I was hoping to sell two cases. I had, people don't sell wine on Instagram. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, whoa. That was a, that was a moment for me. And I realized, I think mostly, that I wanted to keep things in, in that very beginning stage, keep things monthly. You know, originally I was looking at kind of a, a weekly or even um, daily model. And it makes sense, right? If you offer something every day, like get more revenue, it just fiscally makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so to do something, to do like something where there's one offer a month, 12 in a year, just sounds honestly suicidal. And, um, but I said, screw it, let's do that and let's turn it into a, a wine club. I, I, I had a lot of people asking me if it was going to be a wine club and I'm like, I hate wine clubs. I, I, hate, I hated the, like, the retail premise of wine clubs. In fact, the only wine clubs I really liked were the wine clubs that were actually wineries who would reward the people that were giving them their credit card to basically swipe at will yeah. by giving these these wine club members access to special wines that don't even exist in distribution the retail model with with wine clubs has typically been okay let's we have some excess inventory to shore up um what are we going to do with this wine that's not moving maybe right. we'll throw it into a wine club it's still good wine but like you're not really putting the best wine on the shelf typically in a wine club right um, you want to find the best deal. You want to create a different revenue stream. And that's typically how retail approaches it if you have a brick and mortar. And so for me to entertain a concept of only organically farmed wines, if I had a daily model, there's no way I could get that many high-quality organic producers. It would be impossible. But with 12, I could control having every wine be organic and from there, it was just like, okay, what do I drink? Like, if I was going to create a wine club that I would actually join, right. what would that look like? And I just did that, you know? And, and so it's, at first, I was like, I want to be super tailored. And, you know, when, I, when I'm on the floor, I figure out what people like, and I'm good at that. And then it just became like, no, they're getting what I want to buy. And what I want to Anyone want to give them whether? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna drink white wine. You're gonna drink red wine, yeah. and if you don't like it, you don't have to stay. But this is this is near and dear to me. This is what I drink. This is how I drink. And if you're adventurous enough, and your palate is aligned enough, you're gonna have a really really good time, and you're gonna be drinking some really high quality wine. Well, um, and it's also like you're also saying, look, I know my shit. Right. Follow. Trust me. You know what I mean? Like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is good stuff. You know what I mean? And then, and then, right. 
Yeah, I guess it is kind of a GPS for a lot of different styles, um, white, red, sparkling, within a $35 to $55 price point. So kind of a mid-range price point. And it's funny, each, each offer is starting to... So basically, it's 105 a month. So yeah. if it's a three-pack, we're looking at the average per bottle cost being right. $35 to get to 105 And for a two-pack, which is the other option, it's like $52 retail. So I initially was going to have like a $50 wine like less often. Um, now it's a lot more commonplace because not only the relationships I've developed, but the regions that I've become specialized in are starting to get gain so much acclaim and the land is starting to become so much more expensive that those bottles of wine are what used to be 35 are now $50. So yeah. in that respect, with the landscape always changing, if I'm going to maintain that you can drink really, really well at 35 to 55, I have to find new regions and new producers and constantly be thinking outside the box yeah. and finding the next thing. So it's yeah. fun exploration. Well, and, and I, you, the, the other thing I like about it is I like the blogs as well. I think that really adds, like you could, you could have made it just a wine club, but the fact that the, the blog to me, like, like your one that you just wrote on Chardonnay, that adds so much to it as well. You know what I mean? Like well-written as well. I like your writing style as well. So it's oh, thank you. Yeah. It's thank a, you. it's a very well, well-written piece. I mean, every, and I find every piece is, is I like as well, but, uh, it just adds an extra level to read about the, the wines and then be able to purchase them. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a couple things going on. Number one with that, with that blog, it was almost like I was writing the kind of domestic shard op-ed to the old me mm. because for years I felt that domestic Chardonnay was not, you know, it was like, okay, support it Cali. And there's some cool new examples happening that, aren't super oaky and super extracted and you know like I support it but let's let's face it I I really this doesn't hold a candle to burgundy and I really drink burgundy yeah you know and so I, I think I was one of those kind of like elitist burgheads who just felt that Cali just can't can't quite is not quite burgundy and it never will be and to some extent that's true but I've had to Re, but only only geographically, only in terms of terroir. Right. But in terms of like level of quality, I never thought it could get there and it's getting there and it will get there. Yeah. And I believe that now and I had to re, rewire my thinking on that completely because the label prejudice was already there. If I saw an American label, I was like, nope, not going to be as good and therefore the only way I would have those epiphanies was tasting enough American Chardonnay blind right? Um, for that to be like, okay, like I can't argue with this anymore. It's just, it yeah. is possible. Um, so that was kind of the, the op-ed to, to, to my old self. But I don't, I don't think you're alone. Hopefully to people to who maybe aren't as open as they could be. Yeah. And I, I think, I'm sorry. I, I don't think you're alone in that because there's that there is that love hate relationship with a lot of people with with it. You, well, we all do it. We all do it. And and so for me to like to chastise someone who doesn't is that's not the point, and that's not what I'm trying to do. But I think there is a tendency, and it's human nature that you know we we become open to this world of wine when we get to know wine, 
And then we start to narrow the field as we learn more about wine and what we like. Right. And with that narrowness comes lack of being more open. And everybody falls prey to it at some point. And you kind of have to check yourself um, in order to and stay, stay open, even though you've been, you're starting to narrow the field, stay open to possibilities um, and don't set things in stone because yeah. uh yeah i think um california and oregon are are, are proving that that they will get there you Have know you had the much- samples are isolated and a lot of consumers haven't tasted a lot of these amazing wines so they don't know yeah you know well i was going to say have you had much for bc at all for because there's some chardonnay up here obviously as well yeah you know i i'd really love to i every time I've been up to BC. I get sucked into Whistler and yeah. Blackcomb and just end up having so much fun in the city yeah. that I, I've been meaning to go to Okanagan and check out the area for a long time. And, yeah. and that has eluded me, unfortunately. So and I've had a few isolated examples, but not enough. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's a draw. I mean, you're like, obviously you're a skier, right? So, I mean, Whistler's a huge draw. So, yeah. Yeah, and so there's I, tons of, I, there's tons of microbrews down here too, right? So it's it's easy to get just just drink beer while you're here as well. Totally, and I, I there's no doubt in my mind. Just looking at the landscape, looking at the climate, there's no doubt in my mind that you guys can make really really special wine, and probably are already. And I don't even know it. So I, I I'm of the mind like that just about anywhere. I mean, there's a few exceptions that are very very limiting, yeah. but just about anywhere um, you can find a spot whether it will catch fire in the mainstream is a whole different ball of wax but you know well, each area has its challenges and its advantages as well and i mean for for bc there's a lot of uh a lot of the bc residents really like their wine you know they're very supportive so there's a good there's a good fan base for um for bc wine within bc so you know what i mean like people really support their local out here so yeah it's good for that no, absolutely, absolutely. It's on my bucket list. No, it's it's um, it's cool and it's very like, yeah. There's it's it's a little fruit forward in a lot of the a lot of the areas, um, mm-hmm. but it's funny though because there's no like there's no um, specific appellations and stuff out here, right? Like they haven't gotten to the point where like there's legislated, you know what I mean? But it's such a huge area. Then like there's the climates between some of the areas are just, it's just huge, you know what I mean? But they have right. gotten to the point where they're, where they've legislated. Um, but you, you know, like if you, you know, the regions, like personally with, if you live here, you kind of know the regions and you know what you, what to expect. Uh, yeah. But they haven't gotten to the point where it's like law or, or, you know, like, uh, uh, like it is in like France or, you know, anywhere else. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I, I think that, that, I mean, we, any, any, any new world wine region is going to be finding itself for a long time. Yeah. You know, we're going to figure out, we have unlimited options in terms of grapes. We have a lot of different topographies, especially on the West coast. Yeah. You know, when you have coastal influence, it, it lends itself to being able to ripen cab inland and then, you know, 15 miles towards the coast, you can, it's a perfect spot for cool climate grapes, which yeah. doesn't really exist in France. You know, like 
the distance between like Burgundy and Bordeaux is huge. Yeah. You know, Burgundy's continental climate. So yeah. it, it, in some ways it presents a lot more challenges because you can, in a small concentrated area on the West Coast, coast gross so many things and ripen so many things well it's like what do you focus on but that's also the fun part you know because you can do a lot of things well like you said like pinot like pinot down in oregon and stuff right it's just it's just blowing up down there right right yeah yeah you know and we're just because we have these these this liberty to choose what grapes we want unlike you know the france aoc system where it's like oh you're in chablis you're gonna make chardonnay yeah that's it because we have these liberties we can experiment and, and, and drive progress at an exponential rate. But we, we also have a hard time becoming masters of something because yeah. there's not so much of a consensus growing the same thing to feed off that community and to have the marketing juggernaut that goes with it. But it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to see California, you know, people selling out of Trousseau, people selling out of Gruner, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just visited Graham Tatomer, a Santa Barbara Riesling producer. Yeah. You know, and he's selling out a Riesling from California every year. That that didn't exist six, seven years ago. Fun to see the consumers embracing it because they're the ones driving it all at the end of the day. And that's and that's like BC. Like there's there's Riesling, there's Gewürztraminer, there's Cabernet, Merlot, you know, Syrah. Yeah. There's a little bit of Pinot. There's, you you yeah. name it, right? Like, like and, and there's blends are huge too. Because so, like, oh, you got Cabernet, you got Merlot, you got this and that. Okay, boom, let's make this new blends. Totally. Right. So you get the best of all the worlds, right? Yeah. And there's going to be that hunt and peck process for a while where people are playing with what grows where. And, you know, yeah. you'll start to go have those aha moments and they'll come a lot quicker than five centuries of monks going, hmm, this grows well over here. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, yeah, it took a long time for, you know, Chardonnay to replace Sassy in Burgundy. So. You know, you guys are going to get there at an exponential rate. I think most people are. It's a very fun time for yeah. new world winemaking in general. Speaking of aha moments, this is a question I've asked a few people that I've, I've been interviewing. I've, this is only the third. This is only my third one, by the way. This uh, this podcast. So I'm kind of I'm working my way, uh, you know, with with different people and stuff, and, and asking them different questions. But one consistent one I've been asking is. Uh, for yourself, was it a gradual appreciation of wine or was there, was there like the epiphany kind of moment? You know what I mean? Like, I think it was a gradual, gradual series of epiphanies. Okay. So, yeah. you know, I, I got into the industry in 1994, but really didn't touch wine until I turned 21 in 1997. And, uh, I was a bar back at the time and they're like, you should, you serve wine to guests. You should know something about it. And I, I went to my first tasting and it was just, you know, it was the typical like 20 producers down the line at, at this restaurant in Pasadena. And I'd never been to a wine tasting before and was just slamming. It was, I just turned 21, just yeah. slamming glasses. And some guys like, you know, there's a spit bucket here. You might want to consider that. <laughs> I'm, just, a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm all over that buddy. I'm 21. Like, and, but he was, he was like, uh, what do you smell? Tell me what you smell. I'm like, it smells like wine. And he goes, no, what flavors do you smell? You know, and I remember uh, one of the winemakers rattling off all these descriptors. And I'm like, that was like the first time I'm like, wow, people geek out hard over this stuff. It's kind of weird. That was that first 
moment that people take this pretty darn seriously. Yeah. And I think that from that moment on, I kind of gained a working knowledge of the very, very broad stroke basics, um, just so I could line my pockets more. Because I realized wine was a good way to line your pockets. So it was very utilitarian yeah. and self-serving um, for a long time. So from, I'd say, 97 to about 2008, I had Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet in my back pocket. If someone asked a question about a French wine, I'd be like, yeah. talk to so-and-so. And then the economy crashed in 08. And I remember very distinctly going, okay, um, I was writing screenplays at the time like, and, and was really bad at it and said to myself, I, I need to get something going. Let's, let's, let's reinvent ourselves right now. And, you know, I, I sell wine on the floor. I have a working knowledge. I, I'm going to pursue this Psalm thing. I had a master sommelier come in the restaurant in 2004 and say, if you ever get into wine, give me a call. And I did. And he was working at Napa Rose. His name's Michael Jordan, no relation to the Air Jordan. Um, he's like five foot nine, white and large. He is bald though. They do have that in common. I, I called the restaurant and Michael was nice enough to say, yeah, come. And he created this kind of Psalm training ground at Napa Rose in Disneyland. So it was super surreal. Like I pull up to Disneyland, there's Goofy and Mickey, and then I walk in the restaurant and there's a bunch of wine geeks. It was just a very odd yeah. thing. But Napa Rose is a very prominent restaurant in Orange County. Um, and that was the Mecca. And so I, I remember walking in to uh, Steve Poe, who's a, who's a master sommelier, and he, would, he was actually about a month away from passing, unbeknownst to him. He had failed like four or five times. And... I was looking, I just happened to look over his shoulder. It's the first guy I saw. And he's studying a map of Bulgarian wine regions. And I'm like, you got to be joking me. You have to know that stuff? He's like, oh, yeah, dude. You got to know it all. And I'm like, how hard is this test? And he goes, <laughs> I was just like verbatim what he said. He's like, I fought in the Persian Gulf War. He's a really intense guy. <laughs> I fought in the Persian Gulf War. I jumped out of helicopters. You know, I was on the front line. This is way harder. I knew my mission then. I can't figure out how to pass this fucking test. Yeah. And I don't know what happens, but I like freeze in there and I can't get it done. I'm like, this dude like has more stage fright for this test than he does fighting hand to hand yeah. combat um, in Kuwait. And I'm like, that's that's mind boggling to me. And so I, I just kind of dove in and then I watched him do a blind tasting. And he looks at the first glass and he goes, uh, star bright to the edge, consistent to the rim, pale straw moving to a green silvery hue, watery meniscus, the viscosity is medium minus concentrate. I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like, I, like I'm like looking around. I literally looked around at people and everybody's just like writing and they're like, yeah. uh-huh. And I'm just like, am I hearing this right? Like, this is this is you speaking in life right now. Is this real life? <laughs> and he uh, and I'm I, I after he finished, he like nailed six wines blind. He's like, this is Amarone. That is you know Australian Riesling. This is the, I'm like, what? Like I'm I'm in the wrong room. This is not for me. 
And I told Michael that day, I'm like, this isn't for me. He's like, shut up. Just sit down and take notes for like three months. And so I did. And I started to see there was very much a process. And it really was less about your palate and more about your brain. Yeah. And using those descriptors to be able to create a vocabulary, to talk to your guests, to understand the winemaking behind it, to understand what's going on. And it's funny, your, our sense of smell is amazing. The average person senses 10,000 different smells. And so once you create the vocabulary, even the average sniffer gets it quick. Um, and so I, from then on, I was like, well, shit, I'm going to just see how fast I can breeze through this, this course. And there's, of course, there's four levels. And uh, that was it. That was the summer of 08 where I, I really started to, to dive hard. Um, in terms of, that's in terms of the profession of yeah. wine. Yeah. In terms of like the love of wine and where my palate has gone is just an ever-evolving journey. Yeah. You know, and I don't drink the way I drank six months ago. And six months ago, I didn't drink the way I drank a year ago. And so with that, I think my business will constantly evolve as my palate does. Uh, yeah. And that's, I mean, and you, you could say that for a lot of things, right? Like even like for myself, like beers, you know, or anything, right? It, it, things change and things evolve, like what you drank three years ago or two years ago or whatever beer wise or um, like myself, same thing with wine. It was like Merlot and Malbec and then it was Cabernet's and then it was now it's now it's Pinot. It's always been Pinot, but Pinot right. is like the main one for me now. Whereas before it was like, yeah, Merlot's and Malbec's and stuff, right? Like real fruit, fruit forward type stuff. And then now it's more like Pinot's and you want that rustic, Right. Typical, you know, Bur yeah. Burgundian. What was the, what was the switch for you? Do you remember it? I, I don't, I don't, yeah. I just think it was, I guess it was, there's, there's more to, there's more to wine than just fruit. You know what I mean? And there's more, I think that was where it was like, once you start getting those nuances or, or then you're like, well, what's that underlying, what's those layers underneath? You know what I mean? Totally. The leaves, yeah. I, using the spices and the, I call them. I think it goes hand in. I think it goes hand in hand with food. I I don't eat the same. You yeah. know, I used to be a carnivore. I still am, but like I mean, like it was rich food all the time. If it wasn't like huge flavor, like cheeseburgers, like fries dipped in this, onion rings. Yeah. It's not like I don't go to go to the well a few times, but I eat a lot cleaner and a yeah. lot lighter. Yeah. Now, and I think since food fatigues me more, um, wine has fatigue me more as well. And I, you know, I'm, I may owe a lot of that to wine, you know, I mean, there was a time where Cab Malbec Merlot was the jam for me. Yeah. And then I, I, I kept tasting Pinot, especially Bur Burgundy. And it just was like, it tastes like water. It's like so thin. Like, yeah. why do, why do people talk about this? Yeah. And then I kept drinking it and nothing but it when I was at the, the little Nell and Aspen, cause we had a huge Burgundy list. I'm like, I've got to, develop some of a, an appreciation for this but yeah. i it's i'm not having that moment with it yeah and then i did finally and then when i did i went back to the cabs and the malbecs and i'm like oh 
It yeah. tastes like grape concentrate. It's like when you, when you stop drinking soft drinks and you go back to it and then you're like, oh, it's so much richer. Yeah. <laughs> like, how could I like, how could I think this was refreshing at one yeah. point? But I mean, it's not to denigrate those grapes because I think there are fresh and amazing examples mm-hmm. yeah. that I will drink happily yeah. within that category. Um, and that's but yeah, it's it's funny how that happens. And that was like cabs cabs for me. I was it was always like it's too tart or it's too you know it's like uh, with the merlots and stuff. And then yeah, cabs the cabs were too too much of a bite, I guess, to them. I, I don't know what you would I don't know you'd call it but right. Yeah, the tannin. Yeah, and then it kind of rip through you a little more. Sorry? The tannin would rip through you a little more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and then. Uh, we went, like I said, when we were living in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, we did a road trip through France. And so we, we went through Burgundy and that, um, that obviously that's eye opening, right? So it could have been that part as well. Just actually tasting some good Pinots and, and uh, right. just kind of, yeah, kind of awakening, awakening the palate to more than just fruit. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And there's nothing, there's nothing greater than when you develop a love for the old world to travel to those places. Yeah. yeah. You know, and like, I mean, that now for me, the opportunity to live in, in Biarritz right now and to, you know, hop on a plane at a moment's notice. Yeah. It's an hour flight to Lyon. I can tear through Beaujolais, Burgundy. I can tear through the Savoie, the Northern Rhone. Yeah. Very easily from there. I can fly straight to Strasbourg. I can get to Paris, pop down to Loire. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Spain is just 30 minutes south of me, you know? Yeah. You're in a good location. You're like, you're, you're how like Bordeaux for you is like just up the road, right? Yeah. Bordeaux is an hour north and, um, San Sebastian is 30 minutes south. Yeah. So, well, I was like, yeah, I have no complaints. No. And that, and that was like for us, even just living, living in the middle East, as opposed to living on the West coast of Canada where it's like, just to right. get to Canada takes six hours to get to, you know, to get to Toronto is, you know, five hours. So totally. to live, to live in Abu Dhabi, five hours for us gets us to Europe or mm-hmm. gets us to Turkey or gets us to everywhere else. Right. So as a jumping off spot, it was way easier to get to, cause like my wife's cousin lives in uh, Provence. So, uh, same thing, just a quick, it's a quicker flight. Right. As opposed yeah, to, Oh darn, I got to go see family. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She spent, she spent the summer there and, uh, of course it's like 50 degrees in Abu Dhabi. Right. So. Right. She's like, bye. I'm going to, I'm going to Provence for uh, the month, you know? Awesome. So, yeah. So, but then we, we, we went there and like I said, wandered through Provence and wandered up to Paris and, um, through Burgundy, like I said, through Burgundy and spent a couple nights there and that yeah, was great. Yeah. That's, it's fun. It's, uh, I'm lucky. Well, and like you said, like those opportunities are special. You feel lucky when you're there. Yeah. And to, to talk about, like you said, to talk about the wines, but then have not have been and actually experienced it for yourself. Right. And now, now that you're doing it now, it's, it just adds more value to when you're, when you're talking about them, you're like, I've been there. I know, I know what I'm, you know, I know I've been there. I've seen it myself kind of thing. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, like you said, I'm writing these blogs and it, it was, it's so important and honestly very rare. I think in most retail situations, 
you almost always have to write your article position to sell, mm. right? Because at the end of the day, you're writing to sell. Well, I have a wine club, so I don't even need to write these blogs if I don't want to. The, the wine's already sold. Yeah. So the opportunity for me to write about wine without that attachment right. is amazing. And then to actually go to these places, it just creates the opportunity for the article. I have something to say now. I have something to write about. But otherwise, I would have to look at other articles, you know, and and somehow put together this, you know, encyclopedic, yeah, um, sterile article together, you know, that would not be nearly as alive as traveling to to the winery directly and seeing the culture that surrounds it. Well, and and. Uh, the other thing I like about the blogs is, uh, who does, who does your photos as well? There are amazing photos that, that are in there. Yeah, that's, so that's Lauren Hamilton, um, who did the Chardonnay one and she, she's done most of them since, since September. And then before that, there were, <laughs> before that there was, you can definitely tell which ones are me on the iPhone. And then, um, Jimmy Hayes in Napa did both of the both the Envinate shoots and the recent Whitcraft shoot. Okay, and yeah. He's, he's a, one of the most popular wine photographers yeah. in Napa Valley, um, works at Maya Comis. Great guy. Great guy. Fun to travel with, too. Yeah. Um, it just adds value, right, to, your, to the blog because then as you're describing stuff and then you've got the, the photo to go with it, right? Yeah, and, you know, I, I think for a long time, I think it's better now, but for a long time, Retail offers were like a label shot, you know, a picture of barrels, you know, and I'm like, I want, I want the photography to feel free. I want people to be, to look at this picture and go, I want to go there. Yeah. I want them to see a plate of food. I, I want them to, to like, if they just skim the blog and didn't read a damn thing, just look at it and go, whoa, that place looks pretty cool. So, well, even like the, the Maison Dami one that, that, um, you had up as well. Um, there's some great shots in that one, that vlog. Yeah, that's Lauren. That's Lauren. She did yeah. a good job. Um, I appreciate the time, by the way. I don't want to leave. I don't want to take up too much of your t- more of your time. No worries. Did you get what you needed? Yeah, no, this has been great, bud. Uh, Is it a video podcast or it's, it's audio? But I might, okay. I might try and put a little, um, little video. Uh, video is so I do a I do an audio podcast, but then I've got a Facebook group, and so that's the so. I kind of play off of the Facebook group and then yeah. audio from there. Do you do like a little soundbite video? Type yeah. Thing? Yeah. So well, it's a bummer. I wasn't naked. I sh- we should have thought of that before. Have thought of that. <laughs> the possibilities yeah. were endless. I know. I know. It reminds me too much of my past Ian. I can't go there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so are you full time now in France? Like you're, are you, are you, are you, I'm, I, 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 you can't, I don't have a visa yet, so I have to go back right. after 90 days. Right. But so I'll split time between Santa Barbara and here. Right. And I, I, it's hard to find a rental for Biarritz in the summer. So maybe I'll figure out Spain for, you know, July. Looking into that right now. That's a tough, so, that's a tough, it's a tough one. Oh, Spain in July. Yeah, why not? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Uh, the like Galicia, I mean, like the seafood there is is unparalleled. Yeah, 
like unbelievable. So it would be really fun to just kind of soak that in for a few months. Yeah. You know? Well, I was like, that was like uh, when we did Provence, we did that in, in August and uh, she's an ax. So, I mean, the same thing, you just, just going to those markets and just, you know, and that's another, but speaking about the nose, just going through those markets, right? Speaking about their, yeah. I'm going through the markets and just them, you know, the shoe, they shoo you away because you keep smelling everything, right? And you're like, like stop touching, right. yeah, stop touching. Right, it. yeah. Get your get your nose hairs off my paella. What's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, awesome. That was a great time having that interview with Brian, and uh, hope uh, hope everyone enjoyed that. I think we'll leave it there. And uh, the next episode, as I mentioned, will be with Alex Anderson from uh, the Tap Restaurant in South Surrey, who is an aspiring psalm, uh, who's got her W sets, and uh, also a, just a fun interview sitting down with her and uh, the energy that she has and the the enthusiasm that she has for wine uh, will come through on the on the next episode as well. So I think we'll leave it there. Take care and uh, have a glass for me. <laughs>